Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to 1 Kings 12. Last week we looked at verses 1 to 24, today 25 to 32. Uh, Jeff mentioned uh, at the very beginning, no, I guess it was Sam, about that appreciation banquet on April 4th. And if you serve, I would really encourage you to come. Uh, every so often they... Uh, they videotape a little skit or a song or something like that. And uh, the two pastors who have absolutely no rhythm, none, zero, Dan McDonald and myself are in a video that we will not allow anyone to see if you don't come that night. And I'll just tell you that I, I don't like to be embarrassed. I will be embarrassed. I thought Dan had no rhythm, oh my word. So, I would encourage you to come, 6 o'clock, call the office, and let us know. Let's, uh, let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, as we talk about an evil king, a king that did not walk in your path, we pray that we would learn lessons from him, not of what to do, what not to do, not of how to live, but how not to live. We ask, Father, that you would take your inspired and errant word that is historically accurate and apply it to our lives and challenge us and encourage us. Father, guide us, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. Tell Dan is one of my favorite places. If you know the word tell, it means a city built upon a city built upon a city. If you go to Israel, there's about 300 known tells. They're man-made hills. Some of them have in excess of 30 civilizations built on top one of another. Dan is the most northern tribe. Of the 12 tribes of Israel, it is up north in the Golan Heights. And if you've been to Tel Dan, it destroys every stereotype a person has of what Israel or the Middle East might look like. You might have in your mind that it is this desert filled with sand. The Golan Heights look nothing like that. If you go into the Tel Dan and you go into the preserve, you see lushness. You see a woods bordering on a jungle. You see this brook bubbling out of the ground, which becomes a rushing river of just crystal clear drinking water. Now, many of us have heard of the Jordan River. Jordan means Dan descends. The Jordan River starts up in Dan and it bubbles out of three springs, the Banias, the Hasbani, and the Dan Springs, to form the Jordan River, which is 156 miles long, but traverses about 55 miles north to south. But it's a meandering river, and if it weren't dammed up, which in fact it is, it would actually flow into the Dead Sea. So when you go to Banias or you go to Dan and you see these springs bubbling up out of the water and you see this lush 
fer, uh, lush, uh, fertile land, you walk through it, and if you're in Dan, you go through this land and you come to an opening that's probably about the size of this room. And the opening has a temple that was built in 931 B.C. And if you're there with me, we'll sit for a while and we'll talk about a man named Jeroboam. Because he built the temple that we see there that is outlined through stone and the altar is in the middle. And we talk about Jeroboam who was the first king of the divided kingdom. He led the ten and a half tribes up north to secede from the Union. They retained the name Israel, and the one and a half tribes in the south had the name Judah. And you remember that he was concerned in the north that his people might leave the north and go down south to the temple in Jerusalem. So he created several temples, one up north in Dan and one down south in Bethel, Bethel, house of God. And he erected several golden statues, bovines, calves, and he said, this is your God. And if you think about Jeroboam, the first of 20 monarchs in the nation of Israel, all 20 are ungodly, 19 ungodly kings, one ungodly queen named Athaliah. And if you think about Scripture, of all the human kings and queens that are named, you might be surprised that Jeroboam is the fifth most named monarch in the Bible. You have David and Saul and Solomon and Hezekiah and then Jeroboam. Thirteen of the 20 monarchs up north have this refrain. He did evil in the sight of God because he walked in the footsteps of Jeroboam. How would you like that to be your record, your legacy? He did evil in the sight of God because he walked in the footsteps of Jeroboam. 210 years, eight ruling families, 20 rulers, and all of them did evil in the sight of God. And 22 times, for 13 of those kings, it said he did evil in the sight of God because he walked in the footsteps of Jeroboam. And what did Jeroboam do? He introduced, or actually reintroduced, idolatry both in the north of his kingdom and in the south. And he did it at Tel Dan. Please understand that this was not an arbitrary choice. This was not just a haphazard place. The history goes much deeper than that. Allow your mind to go back 400 years. It's that 330 to 400 year period called the period of the judges when everyone did what was right in their own eyes rather than in the eyes of God. And here we are introduced to a young man named Micah. Not the same Micah who has a book named after him. This is another Micah. And this particular Micah stole from his mother 
1,100 pieces of silver. And I want you to think, women, those of you who are mothers, if your son steals from you, how are you going to respond? What are you going to say? In Judges 17, verse 2, she said, Blessed be your name. May God bless you. I don't think that's what my mama going to say. That's not exactly the first words out of my mom's mouth if I were to steal from her. Now, I have never stolen from my parents. Please understand that. Never stolen from my parents, but I'm about to tell you a story. It was in the fifth grade. It was just after Easter. I had been given a solid chocolate egg. And it was about two, maybe three in the afternoon. And I thought to myself, you know what? It'd be nice to have a little slice of that egg. And my mom said, you may not have a slice of that egg. It will ruin your dinner. And I thought to myself, what does she know? It wouldn't ruin my dinner. I could easily eat a slice of that egg, and it won't affect my dinner at all. I'm going to prove it to her. She was in the other room. So I took out a big old knife, and I went to slice a real thin slice because I didn't want her to catch me. And the knife slipped, and it cut my finger. In fact, it cut it right down almost all the way through. I, I have a scar to prove this. And I'm bleeding all over profusely, and I think, man, I need some motherly care and I need some love. And so I'm bleeding all over and I walk in and I explain to my mom what I have done. And my mom gives me a stern lecture. I'm about to die from loss of blood. And my mom gives me a stern lecture about stealing, it was my egg, and about sneaking. And, and I'm thinking to myself, this is horrible. What kind of woman is this? She's more concerned with my heart than my finger. And at the moment, I'm a lot more concerned with my finger than my heart. So a couple of years ago, I brought this up to my mom. It's been, it's been nagging. I've been, I've been wounded for decades over this. And so I brought this up to my mom thinking she would be a little ashamed of how she treated me. And she gave me a stern lecture about stealing. It was my egg. And sneaking, I will not be bringing this up to my mother again. <laughs> but when Micah gets caught stealing 1,100 pieces of silver, his mom says, may the Lord bless you. And she takes the 1,100 pieces of silver and she fashions them into an idol and she sets it up at the exact same spot where Jeroboam 400 years later will create a center of idolatry. You see, Jeroboam didn't choose that spot haphazardly. It had been chosen very particularly because idolaters had been coming to this spot for 400 years to worship man-made deities and God made in our own mind rather than the one true living God. And so he fashioned these calves, one for the south in Bethel, house of the Lord, and one up north in Dan. And he said, these are your gods. And the result was for the next 210 years, 19 kings, one queen, 
eight different dynasties. Every last king and queen in Israel led the nation away from the one true living God. Leadership matters. Often as the leader goes, so go the people. Jeroboam led away from the one true living God. And if you go to Revelation chapter 7, and you read about the 12 tribes of Israel that are honored in heaven, Dan is not named among them. Dan's name is not there. Idolatry is the gravest of grave sins. Because it leads people away from the living God towards a crisis eternity in a literal hell. Well, this introduction I want to pick up and read from 1 Kings 12, 25 to 32. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and he lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, this is the first of two times he says go up to Jerusalem. Is he geographically a little bit lost? Jerusalem is down south, not up north. But if you're familiar with your Bible, it is always up to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem is 2,600 feet above sea level. It's on top of a mountain. You always go up to Jerusalem. So in whatever direction you come from, the Bible says you're going up to Jerusalem. That's what's going on in the text. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he sent one in Bethel, or Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places, appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month and the month in which he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Now remember that Jeroboam has just taken over the land. He has just been made king. He isn't born a king. But because of the succession of the ten and a half northern tribes, They appoint him. In fact, God predicted it in chapter 11. Jeroboam is made king. And you remember back in chapter 11, verse 38, God said that if you honor me, there will be a perpetual 
kingdom. Your rule will be in perpetuity. It will last forever. Let me read chapter 11, verse 38. God's word says this. And if you, Jeroboam, will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David, I will give Israel to you. Jeroboam had God's word. Obey God, keep your eyes on God, follow God's word, and you will have a rule in perpetuity. It will last forever. And Jeroboam took his eyes off of God, may it not be said, of us. The tragedy of Jeroboam's life is he did things his way rather than God's way. Tragically, Jeroboam was weak. He was insecure. Now, humanly speaking, we might say, I get it. I get where Jeroboam was coming from. He's got the ten and a half northern tribes but the temple where you would go for the festivals and where people would go on pilgrim is in Rehoboam's territory down south. So humanly speaking, he might say to himself, well, if I allow the people to go down south, they might see that Rehoboam is doing a good job, that his rule is effective, and they might choose to revert back to one kingdom. They might kill me. I might lose my life. That's humanly how he's speaking. He's talking to himself. I think of a book written by Robert Bella called Habits of the Heart. And in this book, he talks about a nurse named Sheila. And Sheila says, I'm not a particularly religious person. In fact, it's been a long time since I've ever gone to church. But I do just fine. My religion is called Sheilaism. I talk to myself and I follow it and it works out just fine. Well, I doubt that's true. But Jeroboam doesn't follow Sheilaism. He follows Jeroboamism. Rather than listening to the word of God, rather than embracing what God had clearly said, if you obey me, if you keep your eyes on me, you will have a perpetual kingdom. Rather than do that, Jeroboam thinks human-like and human-speak, and he says, you know, I've got to protect myself. I doubt God will do it. I'm not sure I can trust God. I've got to do it my own way. And so he sets up these two calves so that people will not go down south to the temple to worship the one true God. This is an appeal to convenience. Don't miss this. It's an appeal to convenience. Jeroboam is essentially saying, faith should be convenient. God never says that. God's word never says that. God never makes that promise. He doesn't say that faith is convenient. In fact, Faith is often inconvenient because there's something greater, something grander. There's a glorious God and his kingdom plan that we are called to be a part of. And so one of the problems in Jeroboam's mind is that faith always ought to be convenient. And God's word says otherwise. Don't believe the lie. 
that says that faith is always convenient, sometimes it's quite inconvenient. In fact, sometimes convenience, in case you didn't notice Jeroboam is evidence of this, sometimes convenient faith is compromising faith. This compromise is idolatry. He's violating the first two commands of the Decalogue. Exodus 20, 3 to 5. You shall have no other gods beside me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water beneath or under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Jeroboam was setting up graven images and declaring them to be his God. For those steeped in the Old Testament, this is deja vu all over again. This is a yogiism. How is it possible that those who have read the scriptures would allow this to be repeated? You remember when, when Moses was up on Mount Sinai, he was meeting with God and God was giving him the Ten Commandments and he was communing with the Almighty and he was up there a long time. And you remember that the high priest, Moses' brother Aaron, and many other priests became concerned. Moses is gone. The people are unruly. What are we going to do? And so Aaron asked for the ring from the leaders of all the families. And he melted the rings down. And he created a golden calf. And he said, this is your God. Do you remember the response of God in Exodus 38? 3,000 people from priestly families died. And Jeroboam goes a step further. He begins to appoint priests from all the tribes. Do you remember what God said when they went into the land? He said the priestly tribe will be the tribe of Levi, and they shall not receive an inheritance because they shall be scattered among the other 11 tribes, so that we have priests among all the tribes. But Jeroboam said, it doesn't matter what tribe you're from. He violates Numbers 1 and Numbers 3 and all of Exodus. And he begins to appoint priests from any tribe. In fact, it will get so bad in Israel that by 2 Chronicles eleven fourteen, you can be a priest unless you are from the tribe of Levi. And if you are from the tribe of Levi, then you cannot be a priest when God said you can only be a priest if you are from the tribe of Levi. Jeroboam was a foolish leader. So what are a few takeaways for us today? The first takeaway we've already mentioned, as the leader goes... So often go the people. Probably all of us are leaders in some capacity or another. A leader at home, a leader of children, a leader on the job or a leader of a sports team, a leader in the community. Somehow God has placed most in some form of leadership. And as the leader goes, so go the people. Jeroboam did evil in the sight of the Lord because he didn't lead the people to keep their eyes on God. 
He substituted God for something else, which is always idolatry. Always. And so whatever capacity you and I lead in, we need to point people to Jesus. We need to call people to a relationship with God. We need to lead well, for as the leader goes, so often go the people. Second, one's view of God really determines the level of obedience to God's word. It's just true. One's view of God determines the level of obedience to God's word. This summer, I'm going to do a series unlike any that uh, I've done in Highland before. For 14 weeks, we're going to take 14 topics. Now, what do I normally do? I preach through books. Well, all of the sermons will be exegetical, but they won't come from one book. I've taken 14 contemporary topics that people ask, what does the Bible say? And honestly, all 14 passages are going to be straightforward. It's clear what the Bible says. That won't be the issue. The issue is that many of these topics run counter to what culture says. That's going to be the issue. And the level of our commitment to the Lord will determine how well we accept what God's Word says or whether we continue to breathe the air of culture. I'll throw a few softballs. None of these are topics I'm going to do this summer. Intimacy. God is real clear that intimacy is between a husband and wife in a marriage relationship, not outside marriage, not before marriage. In Ephesians 5.3, God says, Let there not even be a hint of immorality or grumbling among you, as is improper for the saints. God is very clear. Intimacy is only within the bounds of a husband-wife relationship. Or Paul, Paul in Philippians starts meddling and he says, let there be no grumbling among you. Well, that's a hard command. It's pretty straightforward. I'm not to complain, I'm not to grumble, but it runs counter to the tendencies of my life. Or how about commands to share the gospel, salvation by faith in Christ alone. His death as a payment of our confessed and repented of sin, where he imputes his righteousness to us and he takes our sin upon himself on the cross, dies, is buried, and rises again, that if we would believe in him and receive him, we would be given eternal life. And God says that message of the gospel is one that I want you, Christ's followers, to share. In fact, I'm asking you to make an appeal on my behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The, the culture says faith is a personal issue. Don't share yours. God says, are you kidding me? You have the the news of salvation, of freedom from bondage, of sin that leads to hell, share liberally as though 
you were making an appeal on my behalf. I think of 1 Peter 2. It says to honor those in positions of authority. And we look at who's in the White House, or we look at who's in Congress, or we look at who's at the the benches all across the country at any different time. And sometimes we approve and sometimes we don't. And the Bible doesn't say that we shouldn't pray for change and work for change and vote for change, but it does say in the midst of that we honor our leaders. So Peter writes in 2.17, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor the leader. There are many challenging commands. Those were just four softballs. But again, it goes back to this. The level of our love and commitment to God and his word determines our obedience. Jeroboam didn't have a high regard for God. He didn't have a high regard for God's word. God said, Jeroboam, keep your eyes on me, honor me, and your kingdom will last forever. And Jeroboam took his eyes off God and said, I need to solve the issue myself. And he tried. And it was a disaster. Finally, this is one of so many past passages in Scripture that teach the uniqueness and utter exclusivity of salvation by faith in Christ alone. I remember a number of years ago, I often lead tours to Israel, and I pick the sites, and I'm prepared to teach at all the sites, and and that's the role I play. But some of you know Bobby Klein in Pennsylvania. Her role is kind of to collect the money, and she does all the financial stuff. I have nothing to do with that. I don't decide how much things cost. I have nothing to do with any of that. And then she'll send me lists periodically of who's going on the tours. And honestly, I, I look at them periodically. I don't look at them all the time. And uh, I just need to know who's going before I leave. So I, I don't really stay up with the lists. And I remember one tour, uh, I didn't really pay much attention to who was going. I knew that it was, I don't know, 45 people. I, I don't remember. And so, like the day or two before, I looked at the list, and, and there was a name I had never seen before. I didn't know who this person was, and his name was Muhammad. And I thought, this will be interesting. And so, I got to Israel, and I met Muhammad. Instantly, I, I knew what I suspected. He was Muslim. I had never had a Muslim go on a tour with me, and I was thrilled, because I know what happens on the tour. I I go to sites, and we talk about the gospel, and we talk about the Bible, and, and we're always in the Word of God. And So I boned up a little bit because I had read the word Muhammad a day or two before I left, and, and I thought, wow. So who is this Muhammad? He, he's gotten a master's degree. You have to get a master's degree to be a tour guide in Israel, and he's going to be a tour guide, and he has been recommended to go on our tour to learn something about what he's going to show. And so I've got a captive audience. I think, praise the Lord. And I'm all ready. And then I realize Muhammad is a really bad Muslim. I don't mean anything pejorative, but I mean, he's a bad Muslim. He knows nothing about Islam. I boned up on Islam and he knows nothing. 
In fact, he says to me that Allah and the God of Scripture are the same. They are not. They are not. That's what Jeroboam was teaching. That's the air on the street. All gods are the same. All faith systems are the same. But if you do any type of comparative religious study, you will know that most faith systems, not all, but most are utterly incompatible one with another. And that is certainly true of the exclusive nature of Christianity. The Bible says, call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The exclusive claims of the gospel that there is no other other than Christ and faith in Christ alone by which we are saved. Jeroboam had nothing to do with Joshua who said, choose ye this day whom you will serve as for me and my house. We will serve the Lord. Jeroboam, this God is good, that God is good, any God is good. And all false gods, if scripture is true, lead to a crisis eternity separated from God in a literal hell. As the leader goes, so go the people. Jeroboam walked in evil. Twenty monarchs followed. Eight dynasties followed. Two hundred and ten years followed. Until God said enough is enough. And in 722, the Assyrians came and carried the northern tribes away. As the leader goes, so goes the people. Our leader is Christ. And he calls for the exclusive belief in him and in his word. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the model that you give us in Jeroboam, a model not to imitate, a model of how not to live, a model to avoid at all costs. Father, we would decry an epitaph that reads, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. May instead we have epitaphs that say in humility we walked in the goodness and the graciousness of Christ, our Savior and our Lord. May that be our lives. May that be our legacy. May that be the model that we provide for others. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.